Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast, presented by the Political Action Committee, People for a Better DeSoto County, with your hosts, Chad and Ben. We hope to give you an informative look into local government by having a healthy discussion about city issues, interview a few friends, and have a little fun. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Boardroom Podcast. Uh, I'm Chad Wicker. And I'm Ben Piper. Who we're coming from, uh, my wife told me to quit saying live from the heart of down or Ward 4. So we're just going to say <laughs> the, the Shelby Row Studios here at the Caffey Place building in uh, the city of Fernando on a great uh, Friday morning. We'll, this show will be out on Monday, but right now it's Friday. And Ben, you want to talk about our, we have, a, I, he, he, well, he's a tall stature guy anyway, but uh, one, I think probably our most uh, prominent guest we've had so far. What do you think? Yeah, we have uh, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman joining us. Uh, he's in the middle of a race for the Republican nomination for Lieutenant Governor with uh, Chris McDaniel. Uh, so we'll have Lieutenant there, Governor Hoseman on. Is there elections going on? There's elections going on, apparently. That's what all these signs are oh, around town. Oh, Yeah, that's what all these signs are about. But we will have uh, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman on this episode. And then in a future episode, we will have uh, State Senator Chris McDaniel, who is uh, his opponent in the Republican primary, coming up in August. So you'll get to hear yeah. from both of them. He's a state senator, I believe, from Jones forest area down there yeah uh, ellisville ellisville that's right yeah i think it's uh jones county junior college is down there um that's the that's where uh that's where that is so just a rural pine belt area of the state but we have lieutenant governor who's been joining us uh we we will be discussing what he's done the last four years uh does he deserve another four years as lieutenant governor asking him some questions that sounds like that sounds like a headline does he deserve another four years i'm just saying i'm that's what the voters have to decide that's right uh he does have a challenger chris mcdaniel we'll have him on like i said a couple weeks from now and you'll get to hear from both of them i think something is too i guess we may be asking this but the lieutenant governor position is very powerful in the state of mississippi not only do you Mm -hmm. run the the state legislature the the senate he also makes several appointments throughout the state on different boards. And so that's, some would argue, even more powerful than the governor, mm-hmm. uh, the lieutenant governor. So it's a very, very prominent position, very important to our state. And so we're, we're glad to have him both uh, have him on and talk about his record. And you uh, decide the legislative agenda of the state. Absolutely. Uh, In the Senate side, you you run the Senate and, and you also have some really some executive power because, again, you appoint different various committees throughout the state. And then uh, you're, you're the, the governor when uh, the governor's out of the state. So. Well, let's, uh, before we get to Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, we are going to talk a little bit about our board meeting. It's long um, meet, man. Yeah, I think I think the board meeting was pretty short this week, just coming off of a holiday, uh, coming off of our Mississippi Municipal League training and conference that we went to you down in Biloxi. talk about a second about that? Yeah, we, can, we can certainly can talk about that. So uh, the Board of Aldermen and the mayor, uh, well, most of the Board of Aldermen, there's a couple folks that had some work conflicts, couldn't make it. Sure. Uh, but the, the Board of Aldermen and the mayor went down to Biloxi for the Mississippi Municipal League Conference uh, the last week in June. Essentially, it offers you some courses and training that you can take to become a certified municipal official. And my uh, like Ch- Chad Wicker, Natalie Lynch, <laughs> and Beth Rohn Ross uh, all received their uh, certificate to be uh, certified municipal officials this year. So congrats to them and that they're putting in the hard work to get uh, trained up. I'm going to be there next year. Yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there folks. You know, it, I'm not a, not a good class taker, I guess. Well, I you're, you're not able to attend the, the mid, the win, mid winter conference because of, of childcare issues. And so well, we kind of got a head start on you from that. So it's no, we're, I'm catching up. I'm getting there. I, y'all, I, y'all I just, did. I did. Hey, see. Ben, I did get a text last night. I believe Notting Hill is getting paid this week, right? 
Notting Hill subdivision is getting some paving on the backside of there in Ward 6. So uh, if you live on Notting Hill uh, All the roads south, in there? There's one road I think it's not getting paved. The, the main entry road is not getting paved uh, this year. I hope that it will be next year. It's up to the, the rest of the board. So, Chad, you got to vote for that. <laughs> Come on now. I need my. I need if you want me to get something done, you just let me know. Okay? Oh, okay. That's, that's how it is. All right. <laughs> I see how it is. All right, so we'll have, uh, if you're on that back half of Notting Hill, it's getting paved the, the, the past week or so, so that you've got that going for you. It's sure. like a, it's, it's going to be kind of like a racetrack out there, I'm sure, a little bit with the kids on their scooters and the side-by-sides and golf carts and stuff. There's they nothing better out. than fresh asphalt, man. Fresh, they, when they, when they did evading over there, it's, it's great. Fresh asphalt, summertime, kids are out riding on it, enjoying it. Uh, board meeting on Wednesday uh, because of the July 4th holiday. The main thing, I mean, there's some little things here, bills that were paid, you know, personnel hired, that that sort of thing. I think in the, in the consent agenda, uh, Ben, I, you haven't run any there. Wasn't there something about the mud bugs, the date for the mud bug bash? Was on yeah, there? mud bug bash, uh, Friday, April 19th, Saturday, April 20th. They'll be closing Panola Street for the mud bug bash for the Palmer home. Yeah, uh, so they will have that, that. We had that go on. Great event. Also, the uh, uh, Hernando High School homecoming parade, Thursday, October the 12th. Um, so you can go ahead and put that on your schedule. That's always a really big one um, to uh, to have there, uh, allowing Haifa to use uh, Kirkendall Park August through November at no charge. So kids can go out there and do their uh, practices and all that sort of thing uh, during the week. And then Hernando Elementary School, which uh, I think we'll both have kids, uh, Chad and I'll both have kids at uh, Hernando Elementary this next year, July 27th, they're going to have a, uh, what's, what's it called? A popsicles in the park back to school event at oh, no man. charge from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on July 27th. So if you got kids, they're going to be at Hernando Elementary. You can well, go why there. do I feel we'll both be there for the, the popsicles in the park? Sounds like. I, I don't know. I, I, I know for sure I will be. <laughs> That's also the same day as the crew of Hernando tee off for teachers oh, golf tournament. Well, I may not be there, then. so we may I may be running a bit late to get there once we clean up from that event. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. But the main thing that we had on this agenda was an approval for the East Parkway water plant upgrade. This was an ARPA project. You know, the bid that was approved was four hundred twenty eight thousand five hundred ninety dollars uh, by Cleveland Construction. Uh, so that was approved. The state provided a 50% match yeah. um, from this. And I think we'll most likely be talking about that at some point with Lieutenant Governor Hoseman later. So only only half of that number is going to be what you see uh, paid for by the by the city of Hernando, but it's coming from, from federal ARPA funds. So it's really state and federal money. It's nothing that's coming out of the city's general fund. Sure. Sure. Uh, but that should uh, provide some additional water resources for the East Parkway water plant. It was uh, unanimously approved, of course. I think just about everything on this agenda was unanimously approved. So kind of a sh- kind of a short meeting, uh, but we should we will have some uh, some lengthier meetings uh, or a lengthy meeting coming up. Should be should on be July time to start 18th. looking up some of the budget information, and then also mm-hmm. I believe the mayor and, and told us I think in, in the open meeting that he's negotiating with our uh, garbage vendor for our, our garbage contract. We they, they've informed us that they will not uh, honor the three percent increase, so we're going to look at some type of increase there. And, uh, and so we're we have our city attorney and the mayor and uh, public works director Lee looking at that, um, and get us the best rate for the city. We'll have to see what we can do there, but people definitely need to keep their eye on that because that's something that I know has been a uh, a sticking point for a lot of people because, you know, trash doesn't get picked up one week or it's, you know, there's certain addresses in the city that for some reason have just become problem addresses. Um, So that will definitely be part of the discussion, I have no doubt, as we're we're, uh, 
negotiating that contract out. So uh, we're certainly trying to advocate for you. But now we're going to uh, transition to our interview portion. We have a, a, a big uh, interview here with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, and we'll be bringing him on now. And we're now joined by Mississippi Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman, who is in his first term as Lieutenant Governor, previously served as Secretary of State, and I'm sure among many other positions. Uh, but those are the most notable and recent, and is now running for a second term as Lieutenant Governor. Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, thanks for joining us here on the Boardroom Podcast. I am so excited to be here. We were in Hernando this morning and uh, had breakfast with a bunch of people and got to talk about what goes on here in DeSoto County a lot, and then also what goes on in the state, which is really important. You know, sometimes you get isolated, and this is not South Memphis. This is Mississippi. Absolutely. And we are very proud of DeSoto County and all the cities that go here and the growth, phenomenal growth that's going on here. And, you know, people want to come live here, and it's obvious. You know, like here in Hernando, you kept your small-town feel, and big city economics is really special place. It's good to be here. What we say is, is low taxes, safe schools, and safe neighborhoods. So I know. And you, <laughs> it should be an easy recipe, but yeah. some parts of the uh, country it's not, as you know. But it is here. Well, some people may be familiar with your background, but mm-hmm. walk us through your background a little bit much and how you ended up here where you are now. Well, I uh, grew up uh, in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and um, up on Eagle Lake. And uh, my people were from Yakna. I don't know if you can even spell that anymore. <laughs> so we grew up there and did the normal things, went to school, played football, did all that kind of stuff. And then uh, Notre, University of Notre Dame had lost to University of Southern California the year before in his own Sports Illustrated. And I got a Sports Illustrated, and I said, man, that'd be kind of a cool place. So I applied to Notre Dame. And for, I guess for some uh, geology diversity, they let me in. <laughs> and I went up there, and the first time I'd ever seen the university uh, was the day they dropped me off out front. I'd never been there like the kids today go around and spend you know, yeah. two or three looks at different universities. Well, I wasn't me. They dropped me off out there. And about a month later, it started snowing, and it snow was over my head by about January. <laughs> so it was uh, a lot of culture shock. There was an interesting thing that happened there, Ben. We, when, within the first week, they called me over and said, uh, you need to do a lot of remedial work. And I said, really? Yeah. And he said, do we have you programmed for a 1.8 grade point average? I said, Uh-oh. well, uh, doesn't it take a two to graduate? I've only been here like a week, but it, I've, I've seen the brochure. You know, it takes two to graduate. Yes, sir, it does. But, you know, you're from Mississippi. Boy, that made me mad. Yeah. I bet. And you need to go do this, and you're going to do that. And I, I said, thank you so much for having me over and everything. I was very nice. And I walked out. I never went back. And uh, when I graduated, I was on the Honor Society at the business school. So, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what do they know? Don't, don't, nobody should ever limit you but yourself. And uh, when we have our discussion, and DeSoto Central was real nice to have me speak at their uh, senior graduation uh, breakfast. And, you know, there's hundreds of people, there are a thousand people out there, because y'all all participate. The reason your schools are so good, your parents and participate in them so much. Corey does a great job and whatnot. So, you know, I talked to them about that, that they're the only person that should ever really restrict what you can achieve in life is sitting in your chair. And uh, if you want to go do this or that or the other thing, dream big and go for it. And the other thing, of course, is to stay in Mississippi because we've got a great future here. Our economy is phenomenal. We're doing great things. So anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But went from Notre Dame, came uh, came back, went in the Army, 
like everybody else did at that point in time. Got I got one semester in in law school before I had to go in the army, so I had to come back to complete law school. <clears throat> then I went. Uh, that was the University of Mississippi. Then I went to New York University uh, for the masters in taxation, and I was basically a business lawyer. And came back to Mississippi, and um, Lynn and I kid about that. We came back. Uh, everything we owned was in the car, and we had we had a negative net worth. <laughs> we owed more debt. We didn't have any assets. We had our TV in the back seat. That was most of it, and whatever clothes we had and everything was in the trunk and whatnot. And we got an apartment, and we had to take the car back because it was rented. I rented it to drive home from college. So I dropped it back at the airport. We didn't have a car for a month. We had to ride in to work with other people, hitchhike in, because um, – because we couldn't afford a down payment on a car. <laughs> so oh, in any event, yeah. we started like everybody else at Ground Zero. And uh, I've been just so excited to be able to, and we have three children and eight grandchildren. Most of them live in Mississippi and are growing up here. And I'm just excited to be able to I think, have I think, some I of think one of your sons may have went to school with one of our other uh, aldermen, Natalie Lynch. Uh, yeah. She, uh, she mentioned that. So. Lived across the street. Yeah, okay. And Natalie's great. She's doing a great job. Talked to her this morning. Yeah, yeah she was there. Yeah, great, great lady. So anyway, we came back and started work and uh, built a law firm and a practice just like a lot of other people do. So during your time as Secretary of State, I know one thing that you have championed time and again is securing elections. Yeah. Uh, so what when people see that, they may not know what that means. So what is that? What's, what's behind that? Well, when I started, uh, one of the things I thought was important was that people uh, that cast a ballot showed an ID. And that wasn't uh, uniformly uh, believed by the Democrats, I just tell you. So we fought, and I got the bill up two or three times before the House and the Senate, and it, maybe the House might pass one, the Senate would pass, wouldn't do it, and so it died back and forth. So finally, we and a number of others uh, did the constitutional amendment for voter ID. That turned out being to be real smart, and I'll tell you why in a second. We got a constitutional voter ID, and it was left to the Secretary of State, left to me to implement it. Well, as you know, everybody, every other state had gotten sued. Oh, Texas, South Carolina, and all of them had gotten sued. So I got in a plane, and I went up, flew commercial up to Washington, and went to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. And I sat in there with the head of the Civil Rights Division and about four, five, eight different lawyers with legal pads and me. And so I, got, I went into discussion. I said, we, we passed this Constitution. My people had voted on the Constitutional Amendment, passed with 72% of the vote or whatever. And we, we believe uh, that, I can't remember exactly what the percentage was right now, but that 72 is another one. But anyway, it passed, and our people have uh, decided that we're going to implement voter ID. And I want you to help me do that. They looked at me like I'd come from Mars. And so I said, and particularly, I don't want you to sue me. We'll work together on making sure this gets done. And they all wrote down stuff on there because, they, you know, they had like a map on the wall. You know, they sue Mississippi just for fun to start yeah, that's every right. day. Let's sue Mississippi and then we'll go through something else. So I came back and we wrote the regulations and I sent the regulations to them. said, here's our regulations. Or I, uh, I want you to review these. We're going to implement voter ID. And it, shockingly, the Shelby case came out, which was a case that said that you couldn't look back on years of discrimination and determine whether a practice was discrimination currently. You had to look at current statistics about availability to cast a ballot and whatnot. Well, Mississippi had always been dragged down because we had years that we, that we were not letting people vote. We had Jim Crow laws and all kinds of other stuff. So anyway, that came out, and so 
Texas said, um, well, you know, we're not paying any more attention to the Department of Justice, and uh, we're going on. And Eric Holder was a uh, we were United States Attorney on Obama, flew to Texas and sued Texas personally out there over their, their new yeah. idea. I did exactly the opposite. The decision came out at 9. At 10 o'clock, I called um, the head of the Civil Rights Division. I said, that doesn't affect me any. I told you we were going to work together. You've got my regulations. I'd like your input. They sent back. They said, you know, you ought to let university students vote with their ID. I said, that's a great idea. We'll put that in there. I can't get them to vote anyway. I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> so I put that in there and a couple other minor changes. And um, about a, we started, we had an election coming in June. And uh, about right at the end of April, I called uh, Mr. Holder up there. Not Mr. Holder, the guy who was head of the Department of Civil Rights Division. I said, you know, I haven't seen anything from you. And he said, well, we reviewed your regulations and everything, and we see no mess. I can remember the quote, we see no reason for the Justice Department to be in Mississippi. I said, I don't either, hmm. sir, and that would be fine. <laughs> we were the only state that didn't get sued. Hmm. South Carolina, Texas, Texas may still be sued. But we worked through that, and that was really one of the good things that people know about. But what I did, because as a business lawyer, I rewrote all the LLC laws and all the securities laws and all the corporate laws. And Mississippi has the best LLC laws in the country when we started, there were probably 30,000 or so really LLCs around. And now I think there's over 200,000 of them. Go, you look at the, the door coming into your building, you'll see the LLC names on, on there. And I got it where you can form an LLC basically for nothing. And, uh, and your annual report is zero and it protects you from liability. And I basically wrote the limited liability companies that I had been drafting in my professional practice. I wrote that form into law. And, in, and today, it's still, now, 15 years later, I guess it's really doing well. And, and that was really, uh, I think the fact that we redid all of those was a really good accomplishment. And then we managed 16 section land, and I'll stop here. Some of the, uh, we had 350,000 acres of timber. About, oh, several of them just had uh, their, their timber management plan in crayon. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm just serious. They hadn't cut, one of them hadn't cut trees in 125 years. Wow. You, you may have to explain to our listeners what 16-section land is. I yeah. know Ben knows what it is. Yeah, but. you're right. That's a good point. Well, when we got the country, uh, Thomas Jefferson said there's 36 sections in a, a township, and you'll see your township, of course, is a section is a mile square, basically. And they said you need to leave the 16th section alone, for and schools. we're going to do it for schools. And that was a great idea. The only thing is we didn't have the whole state. We got this in 1817 when we got that Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, which brought uh, from the Indians, it brought us back from about Columbus to Tunica. And in there, they didn't keep the 16th section land. So you buy and sell 16th section land here in DeSoto County that would have normally gone for the schools. And had they kept that, uh, the income level would be significant, but they didn't. So we had 62 counties with 16th section land. But what the state did is promise all of the counties that they would share the revenue and we would make up the revenue they normally would have gotten on an average from all the other 62 counties. So DeSoto County gets probably about a $5 million check every year, even though they have no 16 section land. And I started managing the timber and whatnot, and we, we ended up raising over a billion dollars during my term per, per schools, and uh, sometimes over $100 million in a year. Uh, was, we had very good years, and, and that money all went into education, and uh, that was a highlight, I thought, of... And I manage it like a business, and 
you know, if you were paying a dollar an acre, we, we valued it and you should had to pay $5 an acre. And, uh, I got one note when I raised a hunting club from $2 to $5 an acre for their hunting rights. I got a note that said, there's not enough orange for you to hunt in Carroll County. <laughs> so I took that as a warning. <laughs> you don't hunt there, I don't guess. So I didn't go hunting in Carroll County. But we raised a whole bunch of money for schools, and DeSoto County got huge checks every yeah, year. And it was yeah. very profitable. Right. You mentioned education, and DeSoto County Schools is one of the largest employers in the county, definitely here in Hernando as well, with it being the county oh, yeah. seat. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about education going forward, what the plan is there, where, where you feel like the state can continue to improve. Well, the first thing I had to do was get our teachers up to some kind of modicum of, of compensation. Uh, we were, whoa, under underfunded our teachers. So in our third year, we had a COVID year, so we didn't, couldn't get much done. But in our third year, we raised teacher salaries $1,000. And last year, we raised them by $245 million, averaged about $5,000 per teacher. So we got our teacher beginning salaries up over Arkansas. I remember Sarah Huckabee Sanders and I had the ability to duck hunt before she got sworn in this year. And she was yelling at me about She said, you know, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. Keep raising your teacher salary. I'm going to have to raise my teacher salary. And I thought, well, is this great? You know, we got other ones trying to chase Mississippi finally. And so we, we got into that. That was job one. Then job two was to try to fund additional funds for what I call career coaches. Now, career coaches hadn't been funded ever before, and you've got them here now. And each one of them meets with their, they supplement the normal education process and they talk with students about where are you going? Do you want to be HVAC or do you want to be a graduate of the University of Mississippi or do you want to go to a community college in North, Northwestern? And what's your career path? Instead of just worrying about who you're going to take to the prom in senior year, where are you going? And what's your economics going to be? And if you do this, you can get this salary. And so those career coaches we started with 80. I funded 140 this year. There are, they're in about 60 districts around Mississippi, and they have assimilated. I was real pleased I met with five of them the other day. They have assimilated themselves into the uh, core curriculums of all of these schools, and they're giving some purpose to kids about taking dual credit, like at Northwest, to take some courses that you may go on to college or some that you may do to do construction. There was a young man yesterday that's doing a construction advanced degree. So those, those are working out really, really well. Then the other thing you don't have here, uh, we put $100 million extra this year in addition to the teacher pay raise, $100 million into schools for making sure that it went directly to the classroom, not the principals or, or superintendents, quarry salary or anything. This goes directly into the classrooms, and it will help them a lot, uh, particularly with things like special needs kids, autistic kids, dyslexic kids, others that, that have the ability to have a meaningful life but haven't had really the, enough sufficient training and whatnot, and people to help them do that. So we started all of that, and it's been really good. What has happened is what I call the Corinth model. About five years ago, I started going to Corinth. They do semester schools, nine weeks on, three weeks off, nine weeks on, three weeks off. Keep, keep Christmas and all that. And then in the summer, they have about five or six weeks. Those are called intercession periods. During the intercession period, the kids can come back to school. And in fact, in Gulfport, which has adopted this process as well, I, they had probably about 1,200 
come back out of about 4,000 that were there during the summer. Now, these are kids that are in a learning environment, getting fed, and uh, are in a safe environment. And they may not have been in that environment previously had this not been done. So you're seeing, I think, about 14 school districts have, have gone this way. Uh, Lamar County, Madison and Jackson, uh, Madison County is going towards this process. Starkville, you're seeing a number of different counties go to this semester system. And what it's going to do, you get 180 days normally, but these intercession periods are extra so you're in a learning environment, a safe environment, getting fed, and our kids are being brought up with additional main that may be cultural deals that may be advanced, or if you were behind on a topic, you can go study up and catch up. I'm seeing that as a wave in education going forward. That's you know, a decision needs to be made by the parents and teachers everywhere. You know, it may not work here because your school system's so great, but in other places I'm seeing that in Mississippi. Prolific. I think Santobia is going to that model, I think, mm-hmm. starting here in August. So. Yeah. And so. you'll see more and more of it. I'm not saying it, it ought to go here or not, Corey, and, and all the parents and everybody will get together and do what's the best thing. you got a great education system. But in places that they have kids that may not have a lot of direction at home during the day, during off periods, this is very helpful. What, what Ben and I talk about on the podcast is the, the DeSoto County bubble. So outside of DeSoto County, you see – some of the areas of Mississippi that are struggling, like what you're talking about, I think yeah. maybe educational. And like you said, when you went off to Notre Dame, they, they thought you were a bunch of big old dummy from Mississippi, kind of like. So. <laughs> maybe um, they might have been right. I don't know. But I, I got the degree. Right. That's time. right. That's right. Hey, Notre Dame degree is pretty strong. So. Yeah. Anyway, uh, do you want to talk about some of the more successes you've had uh, as lieutenant governor and, and, and with the education system? I know uh, I heard, I think recently there was a report that came out, I think, in the New York Times about uh, kind of our, our, our increased. We did. Yeah. We, we ended up finishing, I think, 27th in reading uh, instead of being 50th uh, all the time. We were on a roll. They Before me, they did the third grade reading gate. Yes, been very successful. And it has been exceptionally successful. And now our kids are reading, which is, as you know, the base they're doing anything. And they're reading much better. We're emphasizing that. We are emphasizing now, since I started, we now have about 6,000 children in pre-K in public pre-K, those uh, those kids may not have been in anything because you can do parochial, wherever a parent thinks they ought to be, a head start or whatever. But the ones that didn't have an option like that, we put them in pre-K, and that gives them a year ahead to try to get to K, then try to get to first grade, second grade, third grade. So by the time they get to third grade reading grade, they've been in school five years. And that makes a huge difference for us, I think. So those processes, I, I fully intend and expect that we'll have more uh, kids in public pre-K in Mississippi as we go forward. That's very helpful, I think, to giving them a good run and start on education. Well, I think a lot of, so you have almost 40,000 students in the DeSoto County School District, yeah. the largest yeah. school district in the state. Yeah. So you have a lot of parents in DeSoto County, I think, as well. And, you know, as a parent, you obviously want better for your kids than what you had and, and, and that sort of thing. But also, I think there's a there's a movement with parents to have their kids come back to their home state or their home community or back to their hometown. We had uh, Shad, Shad, Shad White on our state auditor, mm-hmm. uh, old, old buddy of ours uh, from our Ole Miss days. Yeah. And he talked about brain drain in Mississippi and people graduating from state schools and then they, you know, leave to go somewhere else where there's where they feel like there's better opportunity. Yeah, Nashville, Florida, Texas. So what can be done from that perspective, you feel like, with the state moving forward, what can be done on the brain drain in Mississippi keeping – 
keeping our most talented students here? Well, the, the part that they're educated is the most important part, the fact that they're coming out of school here. When I spoke at that breakfast for DeSoto Central, of course, you got Hernando, Lewis, you got all these others, but when I spoke, I, I'll go around and talk to the kids, you know, young men and women. You know, what are you doing? What are you going to do? Where are you headed? And all this other, very articulate, all got a plan. I mean, I was just really impressed with, with that. So to your point, how you come back? And so I've, I talked about that during my talk to them, make sure you come back to Mississippi when you're here. But to do that, we need to do these things. You need to have a good education system. You need to have a safe environment. This year, we got two assistant DAs for DeSoto okay. County to prosecute people. Y'all got one special one that, that nobody else got, and put it that way. And Bob Morris told me to mention they started on Monday, so he's excited <laughs> about that. And I was excited <laughs> to have him there. And you go, the ones, everybody needs a speedy trial. And if you get convicted, you need to go sit in parchment for a while. Right. This year, we did mandatory sentencing, like for carjacking. I did that bill. So that if you, if you carjack somebody, you go to prison. You need to go sit for five to ten years, mandatory, and be fleet policeman and, and cause bodily injury. I, we did several mandatories. I anticipate some more next year. I want to make sure that people at that, during that, when they're in that part of the, what I call the cone of criminality, you, know, you start with a stealing somebody's lawnmower and you don't get caught or you do this or you maybe do street drugs or something. But when they start in an arm getting in your car with you with a gun, the next thing somebody dies. That's right. Maybe them, maybe you, maybe somebody they don't even intend to. So I want to take them out of that and go sit them down for at least five years from that period and let them think about what they're doing with their lives. So we, we are doing that and we're, we intend to continue to do that. And I'm excited to, you know, the second thing is they have to have an economic opportunity. Now, DeSoto County Schools got $7 million of that $100 million that we set aside this year, went up here. And when you're teaching kids to do a lot of different things, like the career coaches, you know, you may be an expert electrician, you know, and there's a bunch of jobs for electricians. So you get a chance to have a responsible amount of income and work where you have an economic future. I think that's important. You look at all of these places that are depositing themselves, Sophia, you know, look at all of these ones that are going out in Marshall County and Tate now just expanding out of DeSoto. That will offer the economic side. So you get a safe environment, you get a good education system, then you get a, uh, an economic environment. And those are flowering here. So we have a, a process. Jim Flanagan and I and David Romsbarger wrote something called MFLEX. MFLEX is where we took all of our economic development packages and we put them in one thing that you can compute in about five minutes if you'll tell me what your capital expenses are going to be and what your average compensation for your employees will be. I can outline what all of what your tax breaks would be. That's been a major part in acquiring the aluminum mill that we acquired in Columbus, the largest one in the country now, I think. All of those things have come out of this influx. So we're, we're doing the economic development to make sure people come here. So I think those things are, and all of those are in motion here. I mean, I'm not just trying to be nice about it. But, but we just, we just did a, Ben and I did it, well, the city did a ribbon cutting on the AWG warehouse here in Hernando, $300 yeah. million dollar investment in our, in our town. So yeah, you're going to run out of property. <laughs> we need some 16 section land. No, <laughs> no, I, but I, I do think, 
uh, managing growth is a is a good thing. You've got a good leadership team here at Board of Supervisors, and they all work together. They've got that group that all gets together. I think. Yeah, the council of mayors. Council we we of all mayor. have. We've had we've had Mark Gardner on here, and yeah. we all have good a great guy. relationship. Hernando, South Haven, Olive Branch. We all work well together. We go to these conferences and all kind of hang out, and everybody gets along great. And so it, it really works it, out. It's good. very helpful because when y'all come down to see us, when Mark and Lee and all of y'all, or I come up here a lot to the council and governors myself, I've been to several. We sometimes we zoom talk talk in with y'all. What we need from you is the number one priority. This is what we need up here, and then if, once I get an indication of what that is, which y'all are good about being unified on. This time it was, of course, it was uh, I-55, so we put 25, we got I-55 moved up to where it is now on the radar to be completed. It starts, I think, in 25. They're doing right away in utility, a bunch of stuff they got to do before they can get there. But uh, we put up $25 million. Now next year we'll put up 25 or 50 million more, and the next year when you get started, we'll have 75 or 100 million in the bank. Hopefully the federal government will put up, you know, we have a match on a lot of these federal programs where we have to put up 20%. You know, if we say we, if we match 50%, maybe we'll go ahead of everybody else. But regardless, we ended up, we're going to end up expanding the I-55 corridor. And the other one that the mayor and I and the city council, Natalie, all of us, crimed under the bridge at Hernando. <laughs> well, this is a Hernando-based podcast, so we're, we're real well, interested in the Hernando that, uh, intersection. That, so. that, 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 that moved way up on the list. And, I, you know, I've talked with Commissioner Caldwell, because you're lucky because you got one that lives right here, about making that a priority for us because the, the growth is here. It's not going away. It's only going to get worse. It's dangerous. Parts of concrete are falling out from underneath, uh, you know, where it washes out up there. Because I crawled up there and looked at it. Sure. So I, I, I think you'll see a push this year to have that be a priority for MDOT. And, um, you know, they get, I think we funded them with about $2.2 billion last year. You know, and it's, it's, it's expensive to do anything anymore. I don't know what that intersection will prize that. John will be able to tell us. But I think it's about a $40 million project. I'm gonna be, if it's $40 million, I'm going to be thrilled. <laughs> okay. Because all the other bids I'm getting on everything else are astronomical. Sure, sure. But that that would be much more achievable if it's only $40 million. Say only, my goodness. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, you used to get a million dollars a mile. Times have changed, haven't uh-uh. they? <laughs> a million dollars a mile. Well, now we're lucky if we get $20 million a mile. Sure. We did seven miles in south of Jackson, Mississippi, before I got there. We did seven miles to Florence, and it's two hundred fifty million dollars. Went to uh, we went to MML this last weekend, the conference yeah. down there. I think you were down there. And anyway, we I drove down forty nine. I think that's the first time I've ever drove down there. there was no construction cones anywhere. It was all done. So. I know. It took them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just remember I was a child when they started. So whatever. We're talking infrastructure and economic development with Lieutenant Governor. Delbert Hoseman and uh and talking about it, there's there's people that are really lucky like Chad that live here and don't yeah. have to necessarily travel I-55 very often uh and there's people like you know myself and my wife we we go to Memphis almost every single day so we have to deal with I-55 traffic sure. constantly um and have to sit in it and, and 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 that sort of thing but the mayor of South Haven's mentioned that he feels like n- not having I-55 expanded is inhibiting economic development but at the same time, you know, DeSoto County is leading in a lot of ways in terms of economic development. So do you, do you agree with that assessment that it's, it's kind of a little restrictive? That well, we... time, uh, time has a value. You know, you used to build by the hour. I mean, a lot of people still build by the hour. Time has a value. For every minute you sit there, you're not productive. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get on the <clears throat> cell phone sometimes, but you bump, bump into the guy in front of you. So we ask you not to do that. 
Um, but time has value. So the value, that the time that hours and hours of people sit on that highway, whether they're not working or not earning a living or not doing other things, has, an, has a cost involved with it. I'm, I'm not sure about how it affects South Haven or whatever. You have to talk to Darren about that. But I do know that when people are sitting, sitting in a line that's not moving for hours on end, that's, that's an economic loss to, to the state of Mississippi because they're not being productive. And Chad and I went to Washington, D.C. earlier this year to ask, the, ask uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith and, and Roger Wicker for uh, additional support for the I-55 expansion and, and project. And I think, that, I think the thought process is that there's so much truck traffic on it that bringing in, whether it's warehouses, bringing in new business or yeah. whatever, that it just simply cannot, it, it, it's, it's, it's become less and less functional. And I, I think that's what they mean in terms of straining economic development. Yeah, but, I mean, I, you know, I think that I-55 yeah. project is going to, I believe, eight-lane it from Goodman Road to Hernando, I believe, something like yeah. that. I'm not 100% sure. But, you know, that, that would be a tremendous, you know, the bottlenecks right there. There's a lot of accidents that shut the road down almost on a daily basis. And so. So how were you received with, um, I don't want to throw Cindy and Roger under the bus, <laughs> but it sure would be helpful if they gave us a little money. Well, we learned that uh, Cindy is now on the subcommittee for appropriations, and, yeah, and so she she was very positive about what she could do for us. So we, we were excited about that. Our our goal was to meet the match to start with. That's why I put that twenty five million aside this year and twenty five next year. So if if they had a match like a seventy thirty or eighty twenty or something, we'd already have our match set aside, so we have no holdback. But eventually, we may end up having to pay for all of ourselves. Uh, Roger and Cindy have worked their way up in the seniority system up there, so I'm hopeful uh, yeah. that they're um, that they'll be able to get an allocation or a match of some sort, and that's why we need to keep funding towards 2025. So when if they say they have a match, then yeah, well, that, that's probably our biggest need, and then also I think the sewer project in South Haven Horn Lake area is, is is probably the biggest. I have been I have been on that for at least three years. Yeah. I have talked to the lawyers involved in that. I've read the pleadings. I have talked to the mayors. Last year, we put $10 million for planning aside just for that, for Horn Lake and, and them. I am convinced that we have lost the case and that at some point in time, they're going to give us a deadline. Sure. Like you have to be off by X. The, and also a very real problem, probability or possibility would be that they raised the rates to like five dollars a gallon or something. Yeah. You know, I think whatever. the city of Memphis already raised them a little bit, but um, they just don't want us on their our Minnesota. That's I mean, right. And under that litigation, and talking with one of the lawyers, and I have to confirm with him. You know, the mayors can do this, but one of them was talking about that since we're on their system, they can approve what our economic developments would be. Yeah. yeah. But then you know what that would mean. We don't get anything. That's right. Yeah. So I, because it would overflow their system or whatever, you know, so they're just not going to do that. That uh, disaster is looming uh, on us. And we put $10 million aside. I pushed that out of the Senate side, and we were able to push it out. We need a number. Dracu and them need to decide if they're going to let them in or not, or you're going to have to build your own. I mean, there are decisions to be made, but those decisions really should be reached before January. Yes. Because that's when we go back into session, and if you're going, if you're going to need X dollar, you know, two hundred million or whatever it's going to cost, then you start just like we had. We put ten million aside to do the planning, so then we put some money aside to do that. When I did that ten million for up here, I got a lot of pushback from other cities. Sure. Why you? Why didn't you do that for us? And my response was, well, because you're not going to have your water cut off. These people are going to be either 
put out of business economically or physically. Yeah. And so it's a disaster, and I considered it that, that, that we should put start putting money aside to fix it. And we will put money aside again next year. We just need to get a plan A is, and uh, I trust the judge. You've got good people on the decree board. You've got good mayors, and you all get, get along on stuff. So. Governor, I think one thing we got to talk about is um, some of the things you've, you've been able to address as far as the state's debt and cutting the spending and so forth, cutting the size of government down. We did that. I, I talked about running the state like a business. Most people kind of laughed. I got a call about a month ago from the head of personnel, and he said, you know, Governor, you said you were going to run it like a business, but this is a direct quote. The blue state never thought you would do that, <laughs> but now they do. When we started in the last four years, we have reduced the number of pins or positions that you can hire for by 5,700. Uh, through attrition, not firing anybody, but through attrition and just being smart about what we do, We've reduced the actual number of employees by 2,300 state employees, over 10%, uh, right at 10% of the state employees have been, have not been, you know, as attrition came when we didn't rehire for the position, and we took the positions away that I told you, 5,000 of them. That led us to being able to raise the salaries of the ones that are here. You know, they were averaging in like 34, 36, and we got them up over 40,000, so they'd be competitive, and they keep... We want to keep the ones that are working, and we want to make it competitive. In addition to that, in addition to a $525 million tax cut, we paid off $500 million in debt. We paid off 12% of the state's debt, and we didn't borrow any money in the last two years, and we're not going to borrow any money next year. And we have about $700 million in our rainy day fund and about $500 million, I think, in our wind pool. I'll have to look back and see how much they've got in there now. But in any event, we have actual cash this this year. We're probably at six hundred million. So we've been able to downsize and right size government, and been able to spend that money on education infrastructure. And I don't have to send forty or fifty million dollars a year in interest to New York City. I'm putting it back in DeSoto County. I bet there's not many states that can say that today. I don't think there's any. And because California is thirty two billion dollars short. Now, we've cut taxes, and we paid off debt, and we shrunk the size of government. We're doing uh, infrastructure, and you name it. I were, you know, if you looked at, a, at a, what I consider a conservative playbook, everything in there we're doing. We're stopped ballot harvesting. We're starting purging on voter rolls. You hadn't voted in two presidential elections, and we you know, shrunk the size of government. We paid off debt. We've uh, cut taxes. I mean, all of those things that you kind of dream about, for our state, we're doing, we're accomplishing those. And just a little politics, I mean, conservative really didn't take over the legislature, what, 2012, essentially? So it's, we've yeah, all done this in about 10 years. That's that exactly right. And uh, kudos to uh, Tate and, and uh, Phil, Philip Gunn, who were there before me, and, of course, uh, Governor Bryant. But we picked up that ball, and now it's accelerated. They got us past the 50-yard line, and now, man, we're in the, we're in the go zone. Yeah. You know, we're in the red zone here. Other states that we got a favorable article in the New York Times about education and the Mississippi miracle and that kind of stuff, but that's all true. I've talked to other governors, other heads of RNC, the whole Republican group. Uh, I was on the um, I was on the drafting committee for President Trump four years ago. I did the economics uh, part of his platform. I, I wrote that with a, another gentleman that ran Hardee's. 
He went up to Washington and stayed two or three days and wrote the platform for the Republican Party. And I will tell you, all of that was like a dream. Could we ever do this? It's like Reagan's, you know, seeing a shining light out there or something. But we, we've done that. I mean, we, we are there. And um, we are poor. We're going to have a great year next year. And we're going to continue to reduce taxes and educate children and build infrastructure. And it's just really good right now. And, and it didn't come easy. There were diff- tough votes by my senators and, and members of the House. But they took them and... Here you are, man. Where it's producing. There's some big numbers in there, and, this, and let's talk about reducing taxes because I think mm-hmm. for a lot of folks, they see it as kind of like their household budget. You know, we've made it. We've made a lot of cuts. Things are headed in the right direction as far as you know, paying off debt and those sort of things. Well, then, at what point can taxpayers say, "When will I see a reduction in my personal income tax?" Because I think that's the well, big this thing year. Obviously, about. it's this year they did away with the five percent rate. We did. And then it goes to uh, 4.7, then 4.4, and then 26 will be 4%. So every year your rate will go down, and you'll, you'll see less income taxes for Mississippi. And as part of that, Ben, this past year I passed a bill. Uh, I, I helped draft it and passed by the Senate. I don't get to vote in the Senate, um, contrary to popular, <laughs> popular thought. I'll, I'm just a referee down there. But I do have some influence. And we got a bill passed that you can write off 100% of every capital expense this year. Now, that means a guy like the ones we were talking to that are uh, asphalt people, they go buy an asphalt machine for a million dollars. Instead of amortizing it over 10 years, they can write it off this year. And I, I'm doing that because two reasons. One, we want them to buy the new machine. Second, that means they're going to hire two or three people to uh, run it and maintain it to increase the job performance. Third, the thing keeps getting more and more expensive every year anyway, so I want them to buy now not not get it into inflation, which ends up costing me or the taxpayers money. And then lastly, I get my money back, you know, in later years. It's kind of the deferral, really. You know, you get a write-off right now versus over the next five years. Well, next year, you don't get a write-off for that equipment. So we start to get our money back over the next four years. It's well worth it, and it has been a... I've gotten brave reviews about being able to go spend money on uh, what they call CapEx, which would be a dump truck or a computer or whatever. Yeah, every bu- every business has some kind of CapEx budget, whether it's, yeah. you're looking at lighting or there's, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, bigger projects that you need, you know, done, conveyor belt system through a distribution center or something like that. There's always those big expenses that are that are in a, in a budget like that for a business. But uh, we've talked about economic opportunity, teacher pay raises, brain drain, reducing taxes, all the stuff that the political folks that listen to our show uh, want to hear about. Let's talk for, for the folks that don't know you as a person as much. When this is a question that we ask a lot of our guests, has there been a moment where, you know, you're the Lieutenant governor, you're the secretary of state and you're in a moment where, man, this is, this is a, this is a cool moment that I'm sitting in, in history, or there's some sort of historical aspect to your job that you've just said, this is neat to be here and be this person in this moment. Uh, a couple and I'll shorten the story some. I, I started complaining about people don't vote. The military doesn't get to vote. So we had a, a system now where you can vote electronically if you're in the military anywhere in the world. And I was complaining about that. So the Department of Defense called me and said, come to Washington and send me your passport and dress for a warm environment. And I ended up in Iraq, Kuwait first, and then Iraq and then in Afghanistan. 
And I was out at the base north of Kabul and then later in Kabul, meeting with all of these men and women, getting them to cast their ballot and showing them how they could send their ballot in and it'd be, it'd go to the Hernando box just like they were standing there. I thought that was something really important. Part of that trip that I remember, in addition to whole, meeting a whole bunch of people and whatnot, I, I landed at the hospital back in Frankfurt on the way back home. And they let me go around the hospital. Now, this is where they bring the wounded warriors when, within 24 hours of when they were shot in Afghanistan or Iraq, they would be at this hospital. And they would fly them back to Dover or wherever from there. But this was where they triaged the preliminary and got them stabilized and everything. And these, these young men, you know, when you see them in an Army uniform with a helmet on and Kevlar and all that stuff, they look like these big, tough kids. Well, when you see them laying in a bed, they look like my son. And so I, I roamed around the hospital, and I went into a room where there was one man in bed, and he's, he was wrapped from really from his hip all the way to his ankle. And he had obviously been shot or, or one of the things had exploded on his leg or whatever. And I went in and said to him, how are you doing? Fine, sir. They treating you all right here? Yes, sir. Any problems? No, sir. Just as cold, I mean, as quick as anything. So I turn. I can remember this. You talk about moments, and I'll tell you about this one. So I'm, I'm, I thought, I need to get out of here. You know, this guy's obviously struggling here and doesn't want to necessarily talk with me or somebody. So I got to the door, and I turned around, and I walked back over there. And I said, son, are you okay? And he said, sir, my men need me. I need to go back. And it was just dead silence in that room. And I, I was, you know, just arm's length away. I touched like his shoulder like that and leaning over. And it, I was just stunned by that. And it took, there was a long pause, maybe not, I don't know if it seemed like long. And I said, son, you need to come home and run your country. You've done your part. And it seemed to have a good effect on him. You know, you could see his facial change a little bit. Like it was okay. You know, he, he wouldn't abandon these, these brothers in arms and whatnot. It was okay. And that's one I think, um, you know, I don't know if I never did anything else, that'd be important. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a, that's a great story. I, I can see how that would affect you for sure. Oh, yeah, I still get choked up thinking about it. And I know I'm so hopeful that man is back running this country somewhere. But just, uh, you know, war and having our young people like that is very have so many we have ptsd come back here there's an operation bonfire that i help with and we would get people back to talk and whatnot but it's there's a lot of lot of kids that went over there young men and women that come back i went back again to kuwait with the 155th two years ago maybe three years ago and they've invited me hopefully to go back to kuwait again with them stage out from kuwait this year hopefully i'll have a chance to go back with our military over there again so we're sitting here with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. He is running for his second term as Lieutenant Governor. And, and just like any, any uh, political race, uh, there's always, you know, s some points of contention, I guess, if you will. <laughs> and I'm sure that you're, you're uh, not, uh, not uh, immune to hearing all this stuff. But uh, so how do, you, how do you respond? I know that your opponent has, uh, has, has brought up some things. 
He's called you a Democrat, straight up, which I, I, don't, I don't think you. I don't think you are. I think you're I was a Republican, on a Republican uh, <laughs> candidate for Congress in 1998, and I have been a member of the Republican Platform Committee. You know, and I wrote President Trump's jobs in the economy portion. We've been, I would say, heavily involved in Republican politics. So, but I think, whatever. and I think, and I think that anybody that uh, that has a, a Facebook or any kind of uh, social media in DeSoto County has probably seen the commercial out there. And I know you don't write your commercials, but uh, saying that your opponent has just not shown up and that his record of attendance is probably one of the things that has been most concerning, and and not showing up for DeSoto County. How does that kind of factor into you know to this race, and how do you think people respond to that? Well, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to. Hide from your record. My my record of all the things we've talked about, from tax reform to seven million dollars for DeSoto County schools this year, to teacher pay raises, to infrastructure, all of that, and ballot elections, and, uh, mandatory sentencing. I got an assistant DA for. I've got a long record with DeSoto County, putting money aside for I fifty five, money aside to try to save us from when Memphis cuts us off. I've got a long record up here. My mother, my grandfather, and mother grew up in in Memphis at 3825 Poplar Avenue. So I've been coming here since the 50s, and I've watched mm -hmm. it grow, and I'm very positive. My opponent hasn't had a bill passed in at least the last eight years, and uh, during those times he was chairman of uh, elections and chairman of the Environmental Committee for the Senate as a Republican chairman. And never got a, I never had a bill passed. And so people can look at his record, and, I, and the good news about here is we've got a well-educated populace they, they got my record, they can compare it to his record, which pretty much doesn't exist, and decide which way they want to go. You know, I don't want people to fall victim to just rhetoric. They need to fall victim to results. Uh, I got a record. If you don't like it, that's fine. I mean, if you don't want to decrease taxes and buy public education and do infrastructure, that's fine. You can disagree on those things. But in his case, he, he really doesn't have any platform other than whatever. It's <laughs> just, it's all hyperbole. And, um, and this is another thing we ask often when uh, we've talked to candidates. So when folks in DeSoto County, uh, they're going to have to make a decision in August. They're yeah. going to they're gonna step into that uh, that polling place. What What is the biggest thing, the most important thing you want them to, to remember about the lieutenant governor's race while, when casting their vote? Well, the first thing I think you always need to think about is your local. You know, which of these candidates has actually performed for DeSoto County? Who has a record of achieving ed everything from education to infrastructure? Who comes up here a lot? Who has a lot of people that work with him and the supervisors? And you can talk to any of them, you know, Mark or anybody else you want to. Who has a record? That's the first thing, because most of the time, your previous record is what you're going to do in the future. And I'm committed to finish I-55. I'm committed to find that we can have our own water and sewer without when we get cut off from Memphis. Committed to having the best education system here in Northwest Community College. Met with them this morning. Committed to a lot of things that we have been doing that we will go forward to in the future. That's the first thing. Then the second thing you have to look at is what's best for the state. And when you start look, talking about somebody that's pay, actually paid off debt and shrunk the size of government, and it, the state's in the best financial condition it's ever been, which will allow us to do the things we need to do up here, that's a pretty strong record. And I, I would encourage everybody to look at that. We have a vision for the future in Mississippi. I know where we need to go. 
and I fully intend to take us there. I've got eight grandchildren. I'm at a position I want to make sure that they can live their lives here and raise their families here and be economically successful here. And that's where we're going to take the, the state of Mississippi, and obviously this county is probably our fastest growing one in, in the whole state. But we're going to take the whole state to a place that they will be financially viable and our kids will stay home. I got one more question. I think you've been so genuine with your time. I appreciate it. But I think it's important to talk on, again about taxes with with a, with a mass with a guy who's got a master's in tax law. So you know that we've heard the grocery tax. We need to eliminate mm-hmm. the grocery tax. And also, again, where do you see us going forward as far as I know? Y'all have made some huge cuts with the income taxes. Do you see a full elimination of that in the future? Or? Yeah, we're at about one six or one eight million in income tax, billion in income tax, and about four hundred million in the grocery tax. Yes. It'll come up next year about which one to dec- or which one or both to decrease. Uh, we'll look at the budget here beginning in September. We'll set our budget in December coming into the session. So we'll kind of know what money we've got that we can start the reduction on. I'm anxious to see the debate on, on whether or not you accelerate more the actual taxes themselves, the income tax, or start to address the grocery tax. Many of these states and the kind of the rumble is around the capital which doesn't mean it's factual, it just means it's the first discussions I'm hearing, are that you would take certain parts of groceries out. Sure. Like like meat and whatever, and you'd either lower or do away with that, like uh, vegetables or something. You'd start where uh, maybe uh, beer wouldn't be taken out or something, but there are people starting to carve into the grocery tax as to what is included or excluded from, and some of that's already done, excluded from the process, or just a simple reduction like we did about we did three tenths, three tenths, four tenths to get a percent, so you could see us go seven to six, seven, six five. You know, start a gradual. Yeah, and do you want to talk about why? You know, because we we have a group of people here in Minnesota County who are running on this. I, I've called the far right wing platform, and you know they have their opinion, which is fine. I just disagree with it. But how reckless it would be just to to, to go down there and just cut cut away all that revenue without any type of long term plan. As far well, as grocery their, tax, their, in their first long-term plan was to raise the uh, sales tax by two and a half percent. So yeah. that's why, why do you think people from Memphis come down here to shop? Because right. it's two and a half percent cheaper by just getting down here. The second thing is those two equal two point two billion dollars, which is about what we put in education. Sure. So you can eliminate education and the income tax and the grocery tax in one year. I don't think we need to do that. It is totally reckless for people to say, well, we're just going to eliminate the income tax. Even the ones that were proposed before eliminated it in like 2036. Sure. And they raised the taxes by two and a half percent. So they, it was a, or a ruse. They were going to raise your taxes and lower this income. Yeah, well, I think it's just political rhetoric. We're going to go down there and cut your taxes, and that's just that's just not the truth of the matter. And, and it's not. And the way to do this is run it like a business and do gradual reductions. We actually, at four tenths, we will eliminate the income tax if we stay on this private before they would have, and we never have raised anybody's taxes. So you just need to do the prudent thing, you know, just like you normally do. Anybody runs a business. We decrease the number of employees, we decrease our overhead, we pay off our debt, we decrease our income taxes in a gradual way that's sustainable. Sure. Now you go do this. Remember Kansas tried that one time. Sure. They had to have everybody back in an emergency session. In Texas this year, the Texas legislature is meeting to do $12.2 billion back to the counties because of the ad valorem taxes on homes is so expensive. It's like 1.8% climbing to two probably 
So every home out there that used to be worth 250 now is worth 750 and their taxes are 1500 So it's running them through the roof. Well, they don't have an income tax, but they can't afford to live in a house. Yeah. So all of this balances out. And a normal thing, our tax rates here for real property are less than half of that. And I don't want people to get where they can't have a house. So yeah. this gradual reduction by decreasing the size of government, being prudent about paying off debt, and we don't have to pay interest, those kind of things allow us to keep our rates low for the counties. For example, you eliminate that tax, what's going to happen to this county? They're going to raise your real property taxes. Well, a, a concern that I have being you know, an alderman is, is the cities get diversion from the sales tax. Uh-huh, so if you eliminate, you eliminate that completely, that, that would really affect the Hernando, city of Hernando's budget. Yeah, really if would. we eliminate the income tax, you wouldn't have any money for education. So you need to go find a way to give Corey Wilson, uh, I'm sorry, oh, so former t- employer, Corey Wilson. He was my basketball coach. Yeah, but give, he he give won't him, claim that, though. Give him <laughs> how many ever millions of dollars or hundred millions of dollars it takes to raise that. It'd have to be out of your regular taxes. And I don't think anybody here wants to do that. I think that would be reckless. You just need to pay attention, y'all. There's no nirvana here. It's good, hard work every year doing better. And we're doing that right now. And again, you know, you, the Republican Conservative Party has only been in control of our legislature since 2012. And look what we've accomplished. We need to keep moving in that direction, in my opinion. Yeah, we're the envy of all these other states. Sure. They all want to know how you did that. So, uh, like I was saying, I had a call the other day from a former chairman of the RNC, you know, and they're all talking about, about Mississippi. I said, well, y'all take a look, man. We have covered a lot in the last... Uh, one, one more question. This is right, a Chad, funny question. Chad, he's always got I, one I, more question. I'm, oh, a, I'm a runner. I know you're a runner. Uh-huh. We got to get Ben running. We try to get him to run. I would love for Ben to run. I, had, I did the New Some, York Something has to be chasing me. Yeah, something has to be chasing him. And, <laughs> and it doesn't need to be something from a restaurant. <laughs> uh, y'all, we, we, do, we did really good this year on something that you haven't covered, which is the match. When we got our money from our American Rescue Plan money, we said oh, if absolutely. the cities and the counties would put their money in a match, you did that. And it came up, I think the total was about $75 million went to water and sewer. In Hernando, you got $1.8 million for the wastewater. You got another 826000 for wastewater. You got another 128000 for wastewater. I'm already at $3 million. Then you got 600000 more for a drinking water project and $241,000 more. When you add all of that up, you're talking about over three, four million dollars. Just at our, our meeting on, well, we had it on Wednesday because of the holiday, but we uh, we just, that $241,000 project, we just approved that to, to go out for bid. So that that's gonna be working on here pretty very quickly. Yeah, I was so, and I'm not saying this because you sit both y'all sitting here, I'm so proud of y'all for doing that, you could have blown that money off somewhere, but we beat the legislature, did its fiscal part. We said, we're going to hold our money back and match you if you'll put your money up. Y'all did that. And now that those things last forever. I mean, you're talking about... Well, that's going to be a water treatment plant that we're working on for East Parkway there. That we'll, right. That's going to be a big deal for us to get, keep, keep economic development on that side of the town. There, well, so. the state stepped in. You made good decisions. Yes. We made good decisions. That's what I'm talking about. People don't see a whole lot of that, but it will allow y'all to continue to grow here. And that money would have gone, we couldn't have found it, uh, but we did the right thing totally. We ended up matching $491 million for cities. So almost a billion dollars went into water and sewer 
that you would have never seen before. And, I, and you're not the only one. South Haven did the same thing in Olive Branch and Horn Lake. You got good relationship here. Sure. But that money that we decided to match turned out to be a billion-dollar positive decision. Sir. Well, we appreciate you having you on the show. And, it's uh, good to see you. you have any last words? No, I'm, I'm just glad to be here. It's, it's a wonderful day in Hernando. You know, you got traffic problems. Isn't this horrible? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got. So thank you. All right, that was Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. He joined us for a great little visit here uh, in the uh, the SRP studios. Uh, Chad, that's all we got for this week, and we will be back in a couple weeks with another guest, and we will we'll have that for you all soon here. But keep on listening to the Boardroom Podcast. I'm Ben Piper. I'm Chad Wicker. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for an episode of the Boardroom Podcast, presented by People for a Better DeSoto County. I hope we were able to inform you and give you some additional insight on how your local government works. Stay engaged. Local government is the closest to the people. Uh